Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community, generally speaking, of course. Welcome to the final episode of our podcast series. In our series, we have examined specific types of crimes through the lens of our special prosecution units here in the district attorney's office. In this episode, we will be focusing on the juvenile justice system, which you will see is quite different from the adult justice system. As you will see, juvenile court has a completely different mission than the adult system. Juvenile justice focuses on treatment and rehabilitation in addressing delinquent and unruly behavior. Of the approximately 9,000 cases filed each year in Knox County Juvenile Court, about 1,000 of them involve allegations of criminal behavior by juvenile offenders. The Knox County District Attorney General's Office is involved in the prosecution of those matters. The most frequently prosecuted juvenile offense classifications and misdemeanors in Knox County at this time are misdemeanor possession of a controlled substance, assault, and disorderly conduct. The most frequently prosecuted felonies in the juvenile justice system include felony theft, aggravated assault, and robbery. With us today to talk about the District Attorney General's role in the juvenile court system is Assistant District Attorney General Dale Holly. General Holly joined the office from the private practice of law in 1994. In his 25-plus years in the Knox County DA's office, he has handled criminal cases from traffic violations to first-degree murder charges. Today, he finds himself in juvenile court where he is our team leader and resident expert in all things juvenile. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, General Holly. I'm glad to be with you today. Well, let's begin our direct examination. Generally speaking, what types of matters are addressed in the juvenile courts? There are really three types of cases that are handled in the juvenile court system. First of all, juvenile court has jurisdiction to handle child support matters. That includes determinations of paternity, dealing with the amount of child support that a parent will owe, and also dealing with arrearages in child support payments. There's another part of juvenile court that deals with family services cases. So those are matters that involve Uh, dependent neglected children, children who have suffered abuse, um, children who've been abandoned or otherwise neglected by their family, and then also custody matters, change of custody going into DCS custody. And then there are the delinquent and unruly cases. Those are the cases that the DA's office is involved in. Those are cases that involve conduct that most people would think of as being criminal in nature. As you've explained those three types of cases, you've stated that really our office is only involved in that third set of cases. Can you talk to us and explain to our listeners specifically what types of cases are in that third group, what we actually handle? So we deal with what are called delinquent and unruly matters. And so a delinquent offense is an offense committed by a juvenile 
that if an adult did the same thing, it would be a criminal offense. So think about things like DUI and assault and possession of drugs. Unruly offenses are sometimes referred to as status offenses. Those are things that are only an offense if you're under the age of 18. So those would be things like a curfew violation or a tobacco violation. Um, the focus of the DA's team at juvenile court is really on felony-level offenses, so more serious crime, violent crime, uh, crimes involving weapons, crimes involving significant level of injury to victims, and offenses that occur uh, on school property. A lot of the misdemeanor-level offenses, so misdemeanor assaults, uh, simple possession kind of offenses, traffic, driving offenses, those are generally handled at juvenile court through administrative and informal processes like mediation, traffic school, victim offender reconciliation programs. And typically, we don't get involved in the misdemeanor level offenses because the disposition is handled outside the courtroom. The offenders aren't brought before a judge to deal with their offense. Let's talk about some of the other differences between adult court and juvenile court. Specifically, can you talk about maybe some of the differences in the terminology used or additional rights that juvenile offenders may have? Juvenile court has a completely different focus than the adult criminal justice system has. So in juvenile court, when you look at the statutes that talk about the legislative policy behind juvenile justice, uh, what you find is that the focus of juvenile court is treatment, training, and rehabilitation of juvenile offenders. So we spend a lot of time in handling our cases talking about those kinds of things rather than talking about punishment and incarceration. We do use different terms. So, for example, in juvenile court, we talk about a plea of true to the allegations of a petition rather than talking about a guilty plea. And uh, after a case is adjudicated, we talk about entering a disposition on a case rather than sentencing the juvenile. We don't talk about incarceration. We talk about detention. Um, the reason for the softer kind of language is that one of the public purposes that's specifically stated in the Juvenile Justice Act is to remove the taint of criminality and the consequences of criminal behavior. So the focus really is on trying to help the juvenile offender and the offender's family to come to a point of being able to comply with the law rather than punishing them for noncompliance. Rehabilitation versus punishment. Right. Right. What about um, rights? What rights do juveniles have when being questioned that an adult would not have as to specifically as to who is allowed to be with them? From a constitutional perspective, juveniles charged with delinquent offenses have the same rights that an adult charged with a criminal offense has. So they have a right against self-incrimination. They have a right to counsel. They have a right to confront and cross-examine witnesses that are called against them in court. The differences really are, are more about the process. So typically, before a juvenile is questioned, for example, an investigator will contact whoever the custodian is for that juvenile, whether it's a parent or some other family member that has guardianship or custody of the child, or sometimes the child is in the custody of the Department of Children's Services. And so the investigator would contact that, that person to make sure that they didn't have any objection to the child being questioned. They would be given an opportunity to be present when the questioning happens. And then when the child comes into court, 
the court tries to protect the rights and the interests of the child by making sure that children don't come into court completely by themselves when they appear in court. There's a parent or guardian that's there with them. There's a, a real effort on the part of the court to make sure that children are fully advised of their rights, that they understand the rights they have, and that any uh, waiver of that right truly is knowing and voluntary. And whenever the rights are explained and there's a parent or custodian there, the court always inquires of the parent or custodian, do you think your child understands what's happening? Do you agree with the decision that they're making either to waive a right or to enter a plea to this petition? Um, so I, I would say that while the rights are the same, the processes in juvenile court are really directed at m ensuring the protection of those rights for juvenile offenders. As far as other differences, what about uh, differences in trials and sentencing? The most significant difference, at least for the lawyers that are involved, is that the processes in juvenile court move a lot faster than the processes in adult court. So when a juvenile comes into detention, they have a right to a detention hearing within 24 hours of coming into custody. If they are going to be held in detention, they have a right to demand what's called a probable cause hearing, which is sort of the equivalent of a preliminary hearing in, in adult court, but they have the right to that hearing within two days. And then if they are held in custody pending disposition of their charge, they have a right to go to trial within 30 days of coming into de to detention. So in the juvenile system, we may begin and end a case from the adjudication perspective within 30 days of the child coming into custody, where on the adult side, you could be talking about months or even years to get from arrest to conviction. Certainly a big difference. Some of our earlier podcasts, we've talked to prosecutors who prosecute in the adult system, and, and many of them have mentioned that it can take up to two, three years sometimes to get a case tried. So right. it's definitely a significant difference. Right, and that also becomes a frustration for victims because they have to live with that case dragging on through the system for those long periods of time. So one, one of the benefits to juvenile court is we do have the ability to get through at least the adjudication stage of the juvenile prosecution fairly quickly. Even for juveniles that are out of custody, the statutory presumption is that the case will be adjudicated within 90 days of the child coming before the court. And then when a child is placed on probation with juvenile court, typically a probation sentence only lasts for about six months. There are some provisions that allow that time to be extended, and certainly if the child continues to incur charges while they're on probation, that probation period will be extended. But it's not unusual for us to have a child come in and then six or seven months later to be exiting the juvenile court system. Another thing that's different about juvenile court is that in juvenile court, children don't have a right to bond like adults have. Uh, the process that we use in juvenile court is that when a child comes into custody in the detention facility, they have a detention hearing the next morning, and the court makes a determination about whether they should be held or whether they should be released, and if they're released, where are they going to go? Who are they going to live with? Are there going to be rules and conditions placed on their on their release? Are there, is there going to be supervision of their release? Um, but the court also has the authority to make a determination that it's in the child's best interest and in the interest of public safety that the child should be held in detention pending a disposition of their case. We don't have jury trials in juvenile court, so all of the proceedings that we conduct are conducted in front of a judge. 
most of the juveniles that we deal with receive some type of probation as opposed to a sentence that looks more like incarceration. And so that goes to the treatment and rehabilitative aspect of juvenile court. The first thing that happens when a child is placed on probation is that they undergo what's called a CANS assessment, which is a risk and needs assessment to determine what level of services are appropriate for that child as part of the plan of supervision. Um, that's equally true when a child is committed to the Department of Children's Services. So what, uh, on the juvenile side, what looks like incarceration on the adult side would be a commitment to DCS as a juvenile justice child. The very first thing that happens when the child comes into DCS custody is DCS starts working on a plan for what exit from DCS custody is going to look like. So from the very first day, they start talking about who are the family members that are going to be involved, what are the treatment and rehabilitative efforts, what are the measures of success, what's expected of everybody who's participating in that plan, and ultimately, what does exit from DCS custody look like. So most of the commitments that we deal with are what are called indeterminate commitments, which means there's no specific amount of time placed on the commitment. It's it's up to the child to work the program, and once the child has worked the program and the family is ready to receive the child back, then the child exits DCS custody. Very few of the children we deal with and the offenses we deal with qualify for determinate commitment, which is a commitment for a specific length of time, days, months, or even years. One thing that I think we've jumped over, perhaps, that we need to clarify for our listeners is when we say child— here in Tennessee, we need to clarify for our listeners what age we're talking about. Right. So the, the children we deal with in juvenile court are all under the age of 18. Once a child turns 18, then they become an adult in the eyes of the criminal law, and their, their cases would then be handled in adult court. Let's talk about what a typical docket looks like for you at juvenile court. Well, we start our morning at juvenile court by reviewing arrest reports and making charging determinations about children who've come into custody overnight that are in our detention. Uh, then we go into the courtroom. We, we have a regular docket every day where we handle plea agreements. We review probation matters. We update the court on status of proceedings. That is followed by a detention docket. So any children that have come into custody overnight that haven't been either released on bond or released to a parent because the offense is appropriate to do that, we have a hearing to determine why are they being held and is it appropriate to continue to hold them. The, the rule, the statutory rule in juvenile court is that the court has to seek to hold the child in the least restrictive, least drastic alternative to detention. So for some children, detention is an appropriate place for them to be, but other children, there are uh, available, safe, and appropriate placements. So the court has to make a determination about that. At the detention hearing, the child is advised of his or her rights, attorneys are appointed, and then the determination's made. If a child's gonna be held, when will we have the probable cause hearing for further detention? Uh, we generally have a trial docket in the afternoons, so we do uncontested and status kind of matters in the morning. If we if we have a proceeding that we know we're going to be putting on evidence, it's going to take a little more time. We'll do those in the afternoons. Once a week, we have what's called an initial appearance docket, which is similar to an arraignment docket for an adult. Those children come in, they're told what they're charged with, they're advised of their rights, 
They're asked if they are going to hire a lawyer or if they want to apply to have a lawyer appointed. Uh, one time a month, we have permanency reviews. So children who are placed in DCS custody as juvenile justice children have a right every 90 days to have their placement reviewed by the court to make sure that the people who need to be participating in the in the treatment plan are participating, they're cooperating, that the child is participating and making progress toward the treatment goals, that there's a plan for exit, that the whatever the placement is, whether it's a hardware secure facility or a treatment kind of facility, that the placement is safe and appropriate. And then in the afternoons, uh, when we don't have to be back in court, we find ourselves doing file review, responding to discovery requests, preparing cases that we know are set for trial, getting files ready for the next week in court. We, we get calls from investigators. We meet with investigators to talk about cases they're investigating and make charging decisions. We have conversations with probation staff about how the kids on probation are doing. Or maybe if we have a juvenile that we know is about to plead um, to something, we'll have a conversation with the probation counselor about what a plan of supervision needs to look like, what needs to be included in that. Defense attorneys call and come by to talk about the cases that, that they're um, representing juveniles on. And then, of course, we have regular meetings every week and every month with the court administrative staff and community partners to talk about policies in court and programs that are being made available and appropriate use of the resources that we have. So it's a, it's a full day at juvenile court. It's not unusual for us to uh, have cases on the docket as early as 8 o'clock in the morning and still be going strong in court at 4.30 in the afternoon. There's a, there's a lot of work to do. I'm glad you mentioned community partners in that last answer. Uh, we've talked about that really the focus of juvenile court is treatment and rehabilitation, and community partners really play a large role in that. So can you explain to our listeners what types of community partners we work with at juvenile court and what services they provide? We do a lot of work with the Helen Ross McNabb Center. Um, McNabb provides counseling services. They do mental health and risk assessments for us. They participate in some of our probation programs, like the home-based program, which is an intensive level of supervision for probationers. And they work with the exit program to help children who are leaving DCS custody and transitioning back to either a family placement or a foster home of some kind. Uh, the Child Help Program is an important partner with us. They, they help us with forensic interviews of child victims of criminal offenses and they also provide assistance for child victims of sexual abuse. We do a lot of work with boys and girls clubs. In fact, the Bean Center is recognized as a boys and girls club facility. So even the detainees that we have, the kids that are in custody and detention, uh, have access to the same kind of programs that kids in the community would go to the boys and girls clubs to participate in. We work with the Knoxville Leadership Foundation, particularly through the Knox Works program that helps uh, juveniles who are struggling to complete their educational requirements not only work through the process of obtaining a GED, but also um, receiving job training and helping to find a job in the community. Uh, we work with shelters like Columbus Home and the Isaiah 117 House. Those places provide a safe place for runaways. They also provide temporary shelter care for children who are in DCS 
custody that are waiting for placement in a more permanent foster home environment. Um, we have partners that provide residential mental and behavioral health and substance abuse treatment like Peninsula and Florence Crittenden. Um, there are a number of nonprofit agencies and churches in the community that provide opportunities for juveniles who've been ordered to complete community service hours. And then, of course, the Knox County school system, specifically the social workers in the schools, uh, help to provide counseling services to kids during the school year and, and work with our probation staff to monitor their compliance with plans of supervision that the probation staff are, um, have placed through the court process with juvenile offenders. Is it fair to say that it would be very difficult to do your work adequately without all the community partnerships that we have in our community? It's fair to say it would be impossible for us to do our <laughs> jobs adequately without having those partners help us. And we are very thankful for those community partners. They certainly make a huge impact in the, in the children's lives here in Knox County. During this podcast, we've talked several times about the perceived curtain in the criminal justice system. We have discussed the ethical rules that are part of that curtain, the ethical rules that prohibit our office from talking publicly about any case that's currently pending. But with juvenile court, uh, that perceived curtain or those protective rules go even further. So can you explain the laws that are in place to protect juveniles? That's right. So we as attorneys, we are still subject to the ethical considerations that you've mentioned. But then in juvenile cases, there are specific statutory confidentiality requirements. So, for example, dependent and neglect proceedings, those matters that deal with allegations of abuse and neglect and abandonment and child custody, those proceedings are completely closed uh, to anybody except the parties to the case and the, the treatment providers that are involved in the case. Delinquent and unruly proceedings that we're involved in are considered to be open proceedings in the sense that anybody who wanted to could come in the courtroom and observe what's going on in the courtroom. However, those proceedings can be closed by the court if one of the parties requests that the proceeding be closed. With respect to court files and law enforcement records, those matters are almost always confidential by statute. Um, that, that means that before we can release information, for example, to a victim, uh, we would have to have the permission of the court to release that information. So that becomes something that's frustrating for victims in our cases is that they may ask for a copy of a police report, they may ask for a copy of a restitution order, they may ask for information about the child that's been charged. And a lot of times when the information that we're allowed to provide if it's a document, we have to redact identifying information from that. Um, or it may be that we can't release it at all unless we go into court and get an order giving us permission to give the victim some piece of information that they're asking for. That becomes even more complicated when the victim of an offense is also a juvenile because juvenile victims are afforded the same kind of privacy protection that the juvenile offenders are. Um, so we, we navigate a lot of procedural hoops and hurdles in terms of protecting the confidentiality of the information that we receive in the cases that we prosecute. certainly can be uh, frustrating to a crime victim because, especially if you're the victim of a serious crime, you're still suffering the same trauma and the same grief 
as a crime victim, whether that crime is committed by someone less than 18 or greater than 18. So it is true that victims are quite frequently are very frustrated when the perpetrator of a very serious crime against a loved one is a juvenile, and um, that, that makes it much harder for a victim's family to That's have access. So something we deal with daily. Let's talk a little bit about your team down at juvenile court. And I say down at juvenile court because juvenile court is the only unit in our office that's actually housed in a different building here in Knox County. Right. So uh, we go down to juvenile court and uptown to the, to uh, our main office. So for our listeners, that's our distinction. So um, at juvenile court, your team does include a truancy coordinator. So can you talk to the listeners about what a truancy coordinator is, what truancy is, and how we enforce those truancy laws here? Tennessee has educational statutes that require mandatory attendance at school for children between the ages of 5 and 18. It doesn't necessarily have to be a public school. It can be a private school. It can be a home school. It can be an online educational program. But the law does require that children between 5 and 18 participate in some kind of an educational program that leads toward a high school diploma. So truancy is an allegation that a child has an excessive number of absences from participation in an approved educational program. Truancy and the response to truancy is a process. It always starts at the schools with the attendance officer and the social workers in the schools taking steps to try to address the problem with the child and the parent and resolve the problem in the school setting without having to bring it any further. Um, the Knox County School System utilizes as part of its process what are called truancy review boards, and that's where our office gets involved. So our truancy coordinator is involved sometimes in meeting with the truancy review boards as they meet with parents about why is it that their children aren't coming to school, um, and sometimes in a more advisory capacity to review the reports and the activity of the truancy review boards. Really, the last step in the process is the filing of a petition in juvenile court making an allegation that a child is truant by being excessively absent from school. And so I remember when I was growing up, you always heard the stories about the truant officers that rode around town in a patrol car looking for kids that were playing hooky and picking them up and taking them to school. That's not really what, <clears throat> what truancy intervention looks like in Knox County. Um, when a petition is filed, the child isn't locked up. They don't come into detention, but they are summonsed into court uh, the court addresses whatever the underlying problems are that are causing the excessive absences. And then the court has, through its partner agencies, resources available to help enforce compliance with the state's mandatory attendance law. So that's really what we try to do in truancy prosecutions is influence children and their parents in the direction of attending and participating in an approved educational program. And reducing truancy is vitally important in keeping youth out of the juvenile justice system and then ultimately into the criminal justice system. Research and firsthand experience has told us that children who are truant have lower grades. They often need to repeat grades. They have higher rates of expulsion and uh, even lower rates of high school graduation. Uh, research also tells us that children who habitually miss school are at risk of substance abuse, gang activity, criminal behavior, suicide, and a long list of very negative 
things in a child's life. I often sat in the criminal courts and listened to criminal court defendants and the plea colloquy. The judge often asks, what is the highest grade of education that you've attended? And, you know, you've sat there and it's just such a small percentage of criminal defendants have even completed high school. So we see that play out all the way uh, through criminal court. So based upon that information, um, as you're aware, our office started a bike program to try to, to combat truancy here in Knox County. Instead of just letting uh, you prosecute truancy on the back end mm-hmm. at juvenile court, we tried to um, take a preventative step and go into several of the local elementary schools and offer uh, at the beginning of the year any child who makes it through the entire year uh, without missing a single day of school, the district attorney's office on the last day of school will present those children with a bicycle. And we've been very fortunate that the Epilepsy Foundation has partnered with us to provide helmets free of charge to all those children who have received bicycles. Through that program, not only have we had great success in raising um, the truancy numbers in those schools that we've targeted, uh, we found that um, as a collateral uh, positive that the grades have gone up for these children, test scores have gone up, and uh, disciplinary actions in those schools have also gone down. So uh, I feel like our uh, bike program has been a very positive thing that we have been able to initiate out of um, our truancy program. So it's just a way that we can be smart on prevention as well as be tough on crime on the back end. And speaking of being tough on crime, let's talk about some of the tougher crimes um, that you have to prosecute down there at juvenile. Let's talk about gang activity here in Knox County in the juvenile courts. Do you see gang involvement in the juvenile court cases, and does gang involvement impact how you prosecute a case at juvenile court? We do see cases where there's evidence of gang membership, gang association, and gang activity. Gangs uh, or gang activity is treated differently in the juvenile system than it is in the adult system. So since we don't talk about sentences in the same sense that the adult system talks about sentences, we don't use gang membership or gang activity as an enhancement factor to increase the level of punishment of a case. Where it does come into play in juvenile court is that Gang activity and gang membership is a factor that the juvenile court judge can consider in a case where we filed a request to transfer the child from juvenile court to be tried as an adult. And you've mentioned transfer, so let's talk about that. There are cases that uh, we find appropriate to transfer a juvenile from juvenile court system up into the adult system. So let's talk about what the process is for deciding which juveniles to transfer to adult court. The first analysis for us is to look at a child's age and the nature of the offense with which they're charged. And so by statute, um, the younger a child is, the more limited the types of offenses are that are statutorily eligible to be transferred. As a child gets closer to age 18, there's more and more discretion on the part of the DA to make a decision about requesting transfer from the juvenile court. And it is important to remember that the DA's role is to request transfer. It's up to the court to decide whether or not to actually transfer the case. And so in making that decision about whether or not to transfer the case, the court considers things like how strong is the evidence in the state's case? 
Um, what is the child's mental health status? Are there mental health needs? Are there capacity issues? Um, and then also the need to protect the community from this child's conduct by placing the child under legal restraint or discipline. So when a child is transferred to adult court, the disposition of that case ultimately is going to be a lot more punitive than it will be rehabilitative. The other kind of factors that the court can consider um, in terms of making the transfer decision is what, it, what exactly is the offense. And so preference for transfer is given to violent offenses and offenses that involve a victim, uh, particularly offenses where there's been some injury to the victim. The court also considers what's the history of the juvenile court's supervision efforts with this child. So a child who's been through and on probation and maybe committed to DCS that has a fairly long history of treatment and rehabilitative efforts that have been unsuccessful and a history of non-compliance with probation plans or treatment plans, that child is much more likely to be found by the court as appropriate for transfer than a child who's maybe a first offender coming into the court. The, the bottom line in a transfer determination is, is there anything left for the juvenile court to offer this child in the way of treatment or rehabilitation, or have we really exhausted all our efforts and punishment is the only thing that's left? The other thing to remember about a transferred child is once a child is transferred from juvenile court to adult court and then convicted in adult court on that transfer, then for the rest of their lives, they'll be considered to be an adult for purposes of criminal prosecution. They'll never come back to juvenile court to be prosecuted on anything after that. Well, as we talked about in the opening, you have been in the office for a long time, over 25 years, and you've prosecuted in a lot of different courts, a lot of different adult courts, and then significant time down at juvenile. So let me just ask you, as a prosecutor, how is appearing in juvenile court different than appearing in adult courts for you? I would say that appearing in juvenile court, prosecuting cases in juvenile court is probably the most rewarding thing I've had a chance to do as a prosecutor. And the, the reason I say that is because juvenile court is a place where at least a couple of times a week, I get to go home feeling like I really have made a difference in the life of a child or the family of that child. Because we really are geared at juvenile court toward trying to help people have a better life. And that includes victims trying to help make victims whole and obtain restitution and obtain reconciliation where it's appropriate. But it's also true in terms of helping that juvenile offender and the offender's family by surrounding them with services that are available through the, through the court to get help for the things that are underlying whatever their conduct is. You know, a lot of times what we see that emerges as delinquent behavior or criminal conduct is really just a symptom of what's going on in that child's life, whether it's problems at home, problems at school, problems with peers. And so it's, it's a good feeling when those intervention efforts are successful, particularly when a child or a family comes back into court three, four, five months later as the child is is concluding their probation, and the family will say things like, this has really been a helpful process for us. You've, you've really made a difference in our lives. You see a kid that was headed down a path that was leading to nothing good, and through the efforts of the court and the probation staff, 
they've been able to turn their life around. They're back in school. Maybe they've got a job. Um, they're getting help for mental health problems or substance abuse problems, relationship problems. Um, so it's a very it's a very rewarding experience, and I'm I'm thankful that I have an opportunity to do that. Well, General Holly, thank you for your dedication to the citizens of Knox County, especially to the juveniles and making a significant difference in so many of their lives. And thank you for joining us today on Generally Speaking. Thank you. I appreciate the chance to be here and talk about the juvenile justice system. Now we'll move on to our closing statements. Our goal with this podcast series has been to educate the community on the criminal justice system in Knox County to explain the types of lenses that our prosecutors must look through by law and give a glimpse behind the perceived prosecutorial curtain. The series episodes have focused on adult court and criminal offenses. However, we felt it was very important to also make sure that the citizens of Knox County understand the world of juvenile justice. Through our podcast series, our closing statements have provided information on ways the community can respond to the specific types of criminal activity we've addressed in each of the podcasts. For prosecutors, the goal in juvenile justice is safety for the community and the rehabilitation of the juveniles. The community response should be prevention and early intervention. Prevention cannot be accomplished by one sector alone. Justice, public health, Education, health care, government, social services, business, media, nonprofit agencies, and faith-based organizations all need to play a role in this important process. Youth violence and crime affect a community's economic health as well as individuals' physical and mental health and their well-being. Many youths have unfortunately experienced traumatic events, including physical, sexual, and emotional abuse and family and community violence. Repeated exposure to traumatic events increases the risk of youth violence. Our community partners who work with our youth daily by providing support and outreach have indicated the following needs and ways that our community can respond. A needed response is for the community to support our after-school programs, whether that's a STEM program, a trade program, or sports program. After-school hours are fertile grounds for risky and violent behavior by our youth. We know that juvenile violence crimes tend to peak between 3 and 6 p.m. on weekdays. This data indicates the importance of how youth spend their time during the week after school. Another need is for mentors. Be a consistent, positive role model and mentor to youth. Youth participating in mentoring programs have fewer unexcused absences from schools. They're less likely to engage in risky behavior, and they just have a more positive attitude towards their education and their own future. Make a difference in a child's life and check out our website for a list of mentorship programs in Knox County. Thank you for listening to Generally Speaking, a podcast presented by the Knox County District Attorney's Office. You can find more podcasts where you listen to podcasts or on our website, knoxcounty.org DAG. If you want to learn more, We've included links to sidebar conversations in the show notes. Don't miss out on more behind-the-scenes content. 